It's OLWJ Captivation, unlimited enthusiasm toward the future. The podcast introducing you to boundless superstars and other professional individuals who are capable of providing you information on achieving maximum success. Segments and episodes of the podcast will be devoted to financial wellness, for everyone deserves a shot at broadening their financial horizon. I am the host, Otis Lewis Wilson Jr. Welcome. From the beginning, you know what I must do. Offer special thanks to you the audience and special guest who make this all possible. To you, I say thank you. On this episode of the podcast, we are discussing financial wellness for everyone deserves the opportunity to become debt free and financially independent. My guest is Mark Willis, certified financial planner, three-time best-selling author, and the owner of Lake Growth Financial Services, a financial firm in Chicago, Illinois, but also the host of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Here is a recorded interview with Mark Willis right here on OLWJ Captivation the podcast in which the letters in the title represent my name. Mark Willis, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of OLWJ Captivation. How are you? So good. Otis, thanks for having me on the show. It's definitely a pleasure to have you here. Let's get things started by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Happy to. Yeah, my uh, background certainly was not where it's ended up today. Uh, like so many of us, uh, life gives us sometimes lemonade, sometimes lemons, uh, but we take it nonetheless. Uh, I started as uh, just a little kiddo uh, growing up and went to school in Abilene, Texas, we were just talking about before we hit record. Uh, and I went to a school there uh, for undergrad ministry and then uh, seminary. They held me back for grad school, uh, as I jokingly say. Uh, I guess they felt like I needed to really get this faith thing down a little bit better, so they held me back for grad school, and I got my Master's of Divinity there. Uh, But I never really felt like I was called to be a minister or pastor. Uh, I knew that I had some desire to do something in in that realm, so we volunteered with a ministry uh, up here in Chicago, where we now live, Chicago area. But, you know, volunteering doesn't exactly pay the bills, Otis, and I graduated from college my wife and I uh, met there, and we graduated from our private schools, three degrees between us, with $120,000 of debt, and no plan to pay it off, and no real awareness of money. I think one of the things I really appreciate about your show is you're really helping people get aware, become aware of their money. Uh, but we did not have that awareness back in the day. This was in 2008, by the way. A great time to be looking for work. <laughs> uh, so we had a, a lot of headwind, let's say, coming right at us, and we uh, we we had this burden or this these shackles around our neck, and it felt like it felt like uh, we were sinking. To be honest with you, it felt like no matter what we did, no matter how hard we worked, that we would never find any breakthrough freedom, and and maybe even worse, 
we knew subconsciously and consciously that our most valuable dollars were being thrown down a hole. Now, what do I mean by most valuable dollars? Well, you know, when you're young, every dollar that you spend is more valuable than, you know, the next year's dollars and the next year's dollars. Why? Because you have more time to earn and uh, compound those dollars for your benefit over your lifetime. A three-year-old has, let's let's just say, 100 years to compound his or her money. But an 80-year-old may only have 10 or 20 years left. Mm-hmm. So that's just, it, it's, it was... Uh, devastating slash, you know, heartbreaking. And we felt shameful. We felt um, disappointed. We felt, um, well, we had a lot of feelings, but we knew that we had to do something to break free. And uh, so that's sort of what got us focused on our finances. And ultimately, we, you know, there's more to the story here, but we ultimately started a financial firm uh, because what we found for our finances was so compelling to us that we wanted to share it with others. Awesome story. So many people fall into that financial slump. Why do you suppose that's the case? It's it's difficult to look down at your waistline and say, yeah, I got to lose a few. Uh, and it's easier to eat the ice cream every night. Uh, but it's someone once said, uh, nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. Nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. Uh, but truly believing that and understanding that and making that impact every second of your day and every minute of your day, letting that redefine you. I think too often we, we define ourselves by other things. I'm just, I spend too much. I eat too much. I'll never be good enough, etc., etc., etc. But I think if you can be start to call yourself something different, you start to believe something different about yourself and you get the wind at your back. You know, when someone says, well, I can never run, I can never get out there and be a runner. And if you can transform that, that statement about yourself to, I am a runner, you can maybe get those shoes on and go on a jog. And I think the same is true with your money. If you always say, hey, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll always be in debt. Well, you know, that money stuff, that's just not for me. I, I'm not a numbers person. You don't have to be a numbers person to get control of your money. You just have to decide that you're going to be master of your money and not let it be the master of you. I like that answer. How does someone go about putting together a financial plan, or I guess I would say a strategy for eliminating the slump that they may be in? Well, yeah, it's, uh, someone once said it's not so much the plan, it's the planning that counts. It's not so much the plan, it's the planning. If we focus too much on the strategy, you know, or the tactics, we'll miss the why behind it and course corrections. Um, Somebody uh, taught me this, uh, and I believe it's true. They said, Mark, if you could choose, would you rather have Tiger Woods golf clubs or would you rather have Tiger Woods golf swing? And it doesn't take too long to think about that. I would much rather have Tiger Woods golf swing. The clubs are next to irrelevant if I've got his swing. I could pick up any stick in the woods and <laughs> hit, hit a birdie, right? Uh, but if I've got his clubs and I don't have the swing, you know, it doesn't matter. Those things are just lumps of iron in a bag until I've got his swing. So it's not so much the plan or the strategy. It's, it's more the, the planning 
and the course correction and the learning process and, and who you become along the way, that really matters. I'm a certified financial planner. So plans and investment portfolios and spreadsheets, that has a big part of my life. You know, um, I told you I went to seminary. I jokingly say my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Numbers. Because I love me some numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it also comes down to learning to, to be willing to make adjustments and you know, shred that spreadsheet and start fresh and uh, take, take a step forward and take two steps backward and to not stay stuck in that slump. If you stay stuck in the slump, you have that fixed mindset where you're always going to be in debt. Oh, I don't, you know, I'm just always, I, I'm not good with money. I hear people say this. I'm just not good with money. Uh, that that is a, I don't want to say a curse, but it's it's a it's it's a it's putting you in a box. Uh, and as soon as you stop growing, as soon as you stop uh, being able to to say maybe I'll be a little bit better with money today than I was yesterday, as soon as you can start to say that, you can start to grow, and it's refreshing, it's exciting, and you can who knows where you can take yourself mm-hmm. if you have the capacity to grow and change. Mm-hmm. Now, I've listened to some of your podcasts, which we will talk about in a few minutes, but let's talk about the concept of self-banking versus traditional banking. What's that all about? Well, it doesn't take much to describe traditional banking. I'll start it with a story. I was five years old. I had put together coins and pennies and dollars from allowance and lemonade stands and whatever, and I believe I'd collected about $50. And I was very proud of it. And I, ha- I kept it in a paper bag. And my family did not come from money, not in the least. But I had uh, collected 50 bucks. And so my mom, wanting to teach me about you know, money and finances and banking, she took me to the local bank to open up a checking account. And it was a proud moment. I was excited. She was excited. And I walk into that bank. And here's this strange man with a label on his on his suit, says banker, and his job was to take all my money. And I didn't like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had worked hard for this. And he was trying to convince me that that bank was a safer place to keep my money than my paper bag. And Otis, I, I kind of felt like my paper bag was just fine. Thank you. <laughs> now, fast forward a couple of years, and it's sort of remarkable how pretty close to the truth that little five-year-old was. Banks are not a safe place to keep your cash. Here's case in point. In 2008, we had 245 entire banks go bankrupt. And did you know that in those days, and still now today, uh, as we still make our way through the pandemic, banks do not have to keep any of our deposits on reserve. So what does that mean? Otis, it means if you put $10,000 into a savings account, they can keep exactly $0 of your money in that savings account. And you say, well, what do they do with it? Well, they lent it out. They lend it out to the person behind you in line who needs a loan or a credit card. Now, how much are they tr- uh, paying you these days, Otis, at your bank for saving money there? Very small amount, that's for sure. Uh-huh. Pennies upon pennies, right? That's right. Uh, but how much are they charging me or anybody else for a loan? Well, everything maybe, they can get. <laughs> everything they can get. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's right. And and now and now what do I do? I take that money that I got. Let's say I got your ten thousand dollars as a loan to me. What do I do with that ten grand that I just got as a loan? Well, I put it in my bank account, right? Before I spend it on my business or whatever. 
And so they get to repeat this process over and over and over again. It's called fractional reserve banking, and it's the law of the land, and it's been that way for many years. And if banks go belly up again like they did in 2008, there's not an appetite for a bailout. There's now in the laws uh, something called a bail-in, a bail-in. It's part of the Dodd-Frank Act. And what it means is if there's a bankrupt bank, there's not going to be another taxpayer bailout. Instead, the uh, depositors of that bank, that bankrupt bank, the depositors become the owners. So you get to trade in all of your deposited cash, and you get these wonderful shares of this now defunct bankrupt bank. So enjoy you know, the firewood. <laughs> uh, that's essentially what happens when you put money and your faith in banks. Now, listen, banks have been around for thousands of years, and banking has been around for just as long. There's a great book out there called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. That title says it all. Mm-hmm. You know, so banking is a core human function. It's as old as friendship is. You know, it's banking is as old as... as just about anything else, cave paintings, uh, as, as, uh, as old as cave paintings. So the question is, if that's traditional banking, how can we do banking back at the you and me level? How can we bring banking back to you and me? How can we self-bank? Well, I believe that banking is not the problem, but I think the way we do banking is the core problem. It's the key problem. If I was to say one thing that messes with more people's financial strategy than anything else, it's banking. And even if you pay cash for things, here's the problem with paying cash. Even if you pay cash for everything in your life, you're still financing everything you buy. And here's why. You either pay interest to a bank through paying interest rates and you know monthly car payments and student loans like I had, or you pay cash for something, like a car, when you pay cash for something, you you are still financing it because you're passing up the interest you could have earned on that money had you left it instead. You're still participating in the banking system. And when you spend cash, you no longer are earning interest on that money ever again. Same problem I had with my student loans. When I sent them my $829 a month or whatever it was, that money was now gone for the rest of my life and my kids' lives and their kids' lives and it's now in the pockets of that banker. So I financed it for my future. When I paid cash for my student loan payment or the car that you bought last year or the kids' college, you might end up having to send your kids to college. You know, the things that we make major purchases on, if we pay cash, we're financing it from our future. And so when you you and I talk about self-banking, that's letting the banker politely leave your life or you can fire them, whatever you'd like, and then sitting on the right side of the banker's desk. I think the the problem is we have the wrong person sitting in the banker's seat in your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. If you can be the banker for yourself, pay yourself that interest that you would have otherwise given to another banker, now you've got control and you get to continually compound your money. I almost don't care what your mutual funds got you last year. If you can pay yourself an interest rate, you can win the financial game. It's that easy. It's it's the small hinge that swings the big big door in your financial life when you can be your own source of financing. I get where you're coming from, but people are afraid. And I guess that's the biggest factor. Why would you say that's the case? I think that people just I don't I don't know if it's an education factor when it comes to self banking. Uh, not enough people are talking about it. 
why do you suppose that people are just not taking the opportunity to look more into something like self-banking, which is why I initially posed a question to you about it? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's, there's plenty of noise in the financial universe telling you to do everything but. You know, if you've been told your entire life to deposit money into your bank account, to put money into a 401k, to hope and pray that the stock market will win and be the the knight in shining armor for your retirement. Uh, and if you are going to pin your hopes on hope and dream strategies, uh, and you've been told by politicians and bankers and Wall Street investment advisors that that is the only way, then it's tough to hear anything else, right? It's, you know, it's sort of hearing the, um, the alternative news uh, kind of makes things, well, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds like uh, something that's out of left field. But let's take a look at the evidence. How mm-hmm. are we doing? You know, it's like the old Dr. Phil quote. How's that working out for you? Mm-hmm. If you look at the last 40 years, the 401k has been around now 41 years. That's all, by the way. It's not even old enough to retire yet. Right. <laughs> and yet, uh, if, it was a, if it was a person, it could not even access its own money. Um, right. So a 401k is an experiment in the American psyche. We think that God created it on the sixth day or something that somehow Moses brought down the IRA from Mount Sinai. But no, it's pretty new. This whole IRA 401k thing is pretty new. Us being this nation of investors, it's kind of a grand experiment. Before that, our grandparents were savers, not speculators. And I don't know about you, but it seemed like they mostly had their things figured out. They had their pensions. They had been able to live within their means. Uh, They weren't living in McMansions, they figured out how to live within their means, live sanely, and use strategies like self-banking, which is a strategy that's been around for hundreds of years in this country. It predates the 401k. It predates, heck, it predates the IRS since it's been around since Ben Franklin. Mm -hmm. But -hmm. that doesn't mean everyone knows about it for sure. And why should they? You know, Uh, if you ask a barber if you should grow out your hair, you could bet what his answer is going to be. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you true. ask an investment advisor, hey, should I go put money somewhere besides Wall Street? That's not exactly there. They're not going to exactly say yes. So true. So true. Explain to the audience the difference between active and passive income. Mm. Well, yeah, that's and a lot of our clients when we meet together over Zoom or over the phone across the country that that's what they're looking for is a shift between active and passive. Now, I'll, I'll say up front, and this will make me sound a little not your average, but that's the name of our show, Not Your Average Financial Podcast. But um, the, 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 the short answer is there's no such thing as passive anything, right? Passive is death in some ways. I mean, think about it. Is, if you're married, is your marriage passive? Is your health passive? No, of course not. Even income that you receive in the mailbox every month from your rental properties, people would typically call that passive income. But I guess I've learned, having met with enough people now, that nothing is ultimately and completely passive to the full extent. Even if it's just checking in on those rental properties, you need to make sure that those property taxes are paid, that the tenants aren't wrecking the place, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there is a there's a spectrum, certainly, of earned income or active income versus passive. And a lot of people come to me looking for ways 
to move from the wage, you know, rat race, you might say, to something that's more passive and gives them more clarity, more freedom, more mm-hmm. control over their future. Uh, that's my distinction. What would you add to that, Otis, the distinction between active and passive? Well, I think you sum it all up in a nutshell, uh, you know, when you say the things that you've said, uh, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, keeping the money going, though, you know, finding mm-hmm. ways to make money. Uh, it almost goes into the aspect of residual income. What category or how would you ca- categorize uh, residual income when it comes to those types of things? Something that you do once and it keeps paying you for a long period of time. You know, and that's that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. If you can set up something once at the beginning and it continues to pay you. Here's an example. Um, get a stock that has a dividend on it. You buy that stock one time and then it pays you a dividend each year the company's profitable. Mm-hmm. Or buy a real estate deal, property of some sort, and it pays you a rent check. Right. Wonderful options and strategies. You still got to do the work up front. Do your due diligence on the investment make the purchase, et cetera. And there's ongoing maintenance, just like anything in life. But if you do it right, you can get that residual um, reverberation of, of income for life, which is beautiful. You know, I, I bought a uh, an annuity last year and some people don't like annuities. I don't know why. They're as old as the pyramids. That's right. It's you know, beautiful they're as thing. old as the pyramids. Yeah. And what is an annuity? Well, you pay for it up front, big lump sum. And then it pays me or my wife for as long as either of us live. That's right. I mean, that's incredible. Show me anything else that can do that with any kind of guarantee. It's a beautiful thing. Life insurance. I have listened to some of your podcast episodes on life insurance. Where are you going with that, man? Tell me, where are you going with that? Well, we better answer quick before folks unsubscribe. Who wants to talk about life insurance, (laughs) right? (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's a true thing. Mm-hmm. That's right. Hey, we're all destined for the other side of the grass eventually. Yes, sir. Uh, but as a certified financial planner, I never thought I'd be so compelled by this old stodgy asset called life insurance. That sounds so boring, so so uh, morbid even. What a downer to talk about that at the, at, at the barbecue, right? Um, but let me kind of explain what I discovered. And it relates also, too, to my story with regard to the student loans. So some people are like, well, what does student loans and life insurance have to do with each other? Well, this this was a very interesting story, so I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. But my wife and I, as you know, we were we were funneling as much of our earned income toward the, our student loans as possible. We were living on way less than we were making, and we were cutting down those debts, although we were feeling terrible about losing all that money. We talked about that earlier, Otis. Mm-hmm. And and one afternoon, a good friend and a colleague and a former professor of ours came and visited Chicago and sat down in our living room. And they looked at me and they said, uh, he, he looked at me and he said, uh, Mark, I want to talk to you about something important and it's called bank on yourself. And so we got into talking about it. And as he described a modernized form of whole life insurance, my mind shut off. Literally, I stopped hearing what he was saying because I was so, I guess, um, uh, I'd been schooled so well in the Dave Ramsey school system, 
you know, his curriculum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that he's got some incredible things to say. I believe he's got a good heart. And I also think Dave's got a lot of correct things to say. And and by the way, he, he got me and my wife focused on our budget and our finances. Mm-hmm. But my friend asked me, he said, Mark, is it possible that Dave Ramsey could be wrong about something? And my jaw dropped. <laughs> I, and I'd never considered that before. So as he explained this, which I'll explain to you now, it opened my eyes and it took me about seven months to finally wrap my head around it. But he, my, my colleague and friend and former professor, he, he, he described a modernized form of whole life insurance, not the kind Dave Ramsey is talking about on his radio shows categorically different. In this type of whole life insurance, it grows a significant cash value right at the start. So it, what is cash value? That's the money you can spend and enjoy on this side of heaven. Mm-hmm. And we cut the insurance part down as much as possible and build, and, and also the commissions get cut by about 70%. And we build this living benefit, not a death benefit, but the living benefit we call it cash value, and that cash value grows on a guaranteed basis outside of the stock market. You can access that money. So I'll say that again. It's guaranteed to grow every single year, no matter what the stock market's doing. You can access that money for any purpose. You can take your kids to Disney World or send them to college. You can start a business or invest in real estate. You can buy a car or, in my case, pay off your student loans. And it's tax-free access to money for any purpose. So it's like a Roth IRA, but without all the red tape of a Roth IRA. And then thirdly, I mean, it is life insurance, so that's kind of nice. I can leave my family a large gift or a charity or a church. And then finally, uh, the last thing, when I access this money, this was what blew me away, but when I access the money, I can use it like a bank. I can borrow against the cash value like a bank loan, but I'm the one in control of repaying that loan. I can pay 100 bucks a month or 1000 bucks a month or nothing at all. And if I never pay off the loan, they just reduce it reduce my death benefit when I pass away. So there's no required repayment plan. But what really got me was that when I borrow against these policies, it will continue to grow as if I hadn't touched a dime of the money, Otis. Hmm. And that's what truly changed my life financially speaking. It changed everything because no longer did I have to decide between paying off my debt or saving for my future. Because when I put it into my policy and then borrowed that money out to pay off my debts, buy a car, go on a vacation, that policy will continue to grow and and compound on a guaranteed basis, even on the capital I borrowed, which changed everything for us. So that's, that's how life insurance became not just stodgy, boring, old, you know, morbid conversations, but um, requirements, right? To, to check one more thing to check off my adult checklist here, but it became a, a centerpiece of our financial life. Gotcha. Now you also talk a little bit about uh, real estate on the podcast. So I've been, I've been checking yeah. you out, man. You've All right. Got, you're doing a great. Yes, yeah. sir. You've got <laughs> some good things happening there. So, uh, s- some highlights of real estate. Let's just touch on a few pointers of, uh, what you've dabbed into in reference to real estate some highlights that you can mm-hmm. share with the audience, perhaps some good tips to look into. Uh, let me pose this question. For someone that's looking to buy a house, for example, they're in a situation and they are thinking about it, 
but they're uncertain as to what to do, you know, credit-wise. What would you say to them in, in regards to real estate? Well, if you're looking to buy a home, uh, I'd say that there's, you know, you, you really want to see it as a property first. Do your very best to try not to get your heart too stuck into a property before it's yours, before it, your 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 name is on the on the um, paperwork, so to speak, uh, and treat it as as arm's length as you can. That's so hard to do, so hard to do when you're walking through and you you can see where the kids might be playing and where the grandkids might be, and you can hear the sounds of of um, you know the the laughter from all the holiday um, memories you might have there. But try first to just be as as thoughtful and as uh, detached as you can, I guess. Be okay if it slips through your fingers, because there's, uh, I guess the phrase, there's always more where that came from, comes to mind here. You know, if you you just consistently repeat that saying, there's always more where that came from, (laughs) you won't mind if this one doesn't, you know, if they don't accept your offer, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Real estate is not one of those assets that CFPs typically like to encourage people to invest in. I don't know why that is. Again, real estate is about as old as any other asset class. I can't think of anything older, really. <laughs> real estate's been around there since uh, since Abraham. A long but, time. Um, yeah, but it's 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 uh it's still not something that's fully accepted or, or you know uh, incorporated into most CFPs' financial plans. Maybe it's. Maybe it's uh, there's a bias toward uh, paper assets like stocks, bonds, mutual funds. But regardless, I do think that real estate has a part to play in a lot of people's uh, financial life. And if you can think carefully about what kind of transactions you want to do with real estate, uh, you can really use that in part to supplement your overall financial strategy. And some people I work with are into wholesaling. Some people do rental properties. Some people do Airbnb. Other people do something called house hacking, where you live on, you know, one side of the house. It's a duplex, let's say. You live on the left side of the building, and your renter tenant lives on the right side of the building, and they essentially are paying your mortgage for you, and you can live in that house without any payment due. That's a pretty neat deal. Um, lots of ways you can use real estate to to effectively have some more control in your life. And if you use that bank on yourself policy I mentioned earlier, heck, that's a great way to borrow against the policy's cash. I did this when I bought my home. I borrowed against that policy's cash value and used it to purchase the down payment for my home. Mm-hmm. So I'm in my home. I'm enjoying my home. But my policy is still growing as if I hadn't touched the money. Gotcha. Uh, so it can be used in coordination with my real estate transactions. Okay, great, great. Here's another question for you. We are listening to the news and inflation is a topic, a high topic, mm-hmm. politicians everywhere. As a financial planning person, what are you telling people as it relates to inflation? Well, there's uh, no one's got a crystal ball is basically what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but we can we can see what's happened in the past and. You know, there's 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 a staggering statistic that says that 40% of all money in this country that's ever been created, and I mean ever since the beginning of of the republic, 
uh, 40% of all money ever created was created in the last 12 months. Let that sink in for a minute, and it might start to impact why we're seeing prices going up. You know, if everyone, if we just gave everyone a million dollars today, Otis, what do you think would happen to the cup of coffee's price tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. You know? Something to think about. Yeah, something to think about. Now, uh, there's lots of, that's not the only reason. I mean, we could bring up other things, the pandemic, supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. But for most families, they're just, they just want to know what's this going to mean for me. And, you know, we, we had a positive growth on our Social Security checks that went up by 6% last year. That's the largest increase in many years. But we had a 14% uh, pay, pay increase on our Medicare premiums. So, you know, what the gov- government giveth, the government can take away, too. So we had an increase of 6% on our Social Security checks, but then they jacked up our Medicare premiums, taking away most of the, the increase there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does all this mean? It, it means that we've got to be very clear and careful with what we're doing with our money. In times of high inflation... Prices go up, and that includes uh, the price of uh, stock market purchases. It includes the price of real estate purchases, and you have to decide. Well, you know, what is the what is the value of my dollar in my pocket today, and where can I put that money so that it can stay away from the stealth tax of inflation? Well, we've definitely had some major transitions in terms of uh, you know where things have. Uh come from and in terms of where things are going. So it's, it's going to be interesting uh, to see what happens, you know, over time. As you said, no one has a crystal ball. So it's going to be interesting to see what the outcome is going to be. Well, Mark, I tell you what, man, this is an awesome conversation. I'm really enjoying it. But let's um, have you share your uh, social information and any additional information you'd want to share with the audience so that they can perhaps uh, check out your podcast and, you know, uh, perhaps uh, go to your group on Facebook or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for a great conversation, and uh, you've spurred some deep thought for me too, Otis, so I appreciate the, the discussion. Uh, if folks are uh, wanting to learn more about some of these counterintuitive strategies, we have a podcast where we've got over 200 episodes and have enjoyed sharing with uh, with our listeners the journey I've gone on and, and our other associates in our firm, Lake Growth Financial, have gone on. The name of the podcast is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, and you can go to notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com. There's a button there that says Request a Meeting if you'd like to meet. Happy to chat for 15 minutes if you want to learn any more about some of the strategies that saved my bacon when it came to my own um, student loan uh, debacle that I found myself in. Or if it's just a matter of finding a better way to save and prepare for the future, that's uh, notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com. Fantastic. Now, I always ask my guests one final question. So you're no different, of course. What is your definition of the word boundless? Mm. You know... I, th- I hear that word, and I think about a rocket ship leaving Earth, and I think about the James Webb telescope that recently left Earth and is now one million miles from our atmosphere, and I think about the infinite expanse of space, and I think about 
the power of the word potential as it relates to boundless. So work with me on this for just a second. I'll try to keep it brief. But if a rocket ship is full of fuel, you might say it's full of potential. And it can reach the upper ends of, of our boundaries. In fact, you might say it's even boundless. But if it just sits there on that launch pad and rusts away and disassembles itself, falls apart, that would be a tragedy. Untapped potential leaves you bound. So activating your potential, lighting that fire, can make you boundless. I love it. I love it. Well, Mark, thank you so much for uh, being a guest on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you, and I wish you all the best going forward. Likewise, Otis, thanks for the time. To learn more about me, visit my website at www.olwjboundless.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast mailing list. I encourage you to do that. Also, follow me on Instagram at O underscore Wilson underscore Jr. Follow me on Twitter at OLWJ Boundless. And also learn how I can help you financially. Any comments, feedback, or suggestions regarding this podcast is welcome. For a motivational speaker, Les Brown once said, It's okay to fail, because if you land on your back, you can look up and then get up. Until next time, take care.